Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. It's been a strange week for me. I've been out and about an awful lot. As normal, my house is chaotic at home. Um, And so I've actually had to resort to recording this episode using a small handheld device, almost on the move, i.e. when I'm in the car, when it's parked up. Just haven't had time to get stuff out at home and and record a session at home. So I apologise about the poor audio quality. I'm not going to apologise about what's actually in this episode because this is going to be, I think, an important episode. More about that in just a moment. I need to apologise for last week's episode. What can I say? I was very tired, it was an awful lot of emotion going on, the news of my grandson being born, oh, fantastic. And I will be honest, I've got some photographs of him on my iPhone, and I look at that every day. What a gorgeous little chap he is. However, it did mean that last week's episode was very rambly and disorganised, and I do apologise about that, but I do hope people got something out of it, something at least. This week, I also have to say I'm fed up. I've had enough, I'm giving in. And what is it I'm giving in with? I'm giving in with trying to sell the home calling whiskey on my own website. The reason I'm saying this is that regular listeners will know I have had problem after problem after problem, technical issues with setting that up, going through all forms of license getting and and all those things that I I talked about in the episode that I did about that recently. However, more recently, more recently being this week, I've also found out that money that's gone into that, that should have gone through to my my own bank account, hasn't gone through. Reason being, a bit of an error along the way. Again, this is not something that has been my, my fault, has not been a mistake that I've made. It's been an error from one of the agencies that's involved with this. That has now been sorted out. Um, there's some ongoing issues with that, with the complaint. It doesn't affect people being able to buy um, the home calling whiskey. It affects it at the other end, which is me getting hold of the money after they've done that. That has been sorted out, but it's just left me feeling, is it actually worth doing this? I've done this to try to learn about the industry. I've not done this to try to learn about internet sales and all that sort of side of it. So this is what I'm doing. I've already had it in notice. I'm going to close down the eShop part of my website. Um, that would mean that if you want to buy a bottle of the home calling um, from my website, please do so soon. If you want to make a donation to help support the podcast, please do so soon, because that facility isn't going to be there for much longer. I can't give a fixed date on when it's going to close down yet, but I have given notice on it, so it's just a matter of, of working through that. Um, what's going to happen to the home calling whiskey is an interesting one. It's one of two or possibly three things that could happen. 
what I'd like to do is find an, a retailer or possibly more than one retailer who will distribute, will sell for me and um, or even buy from me if it comes to that. Um, and I'm hoping as well that that might enable it to reach um, farther afield than I've been able to do on my website. So, for example, it may well be that I can find a way by doing this of being able to ship um, bottles from the UK abroad, which I think would be really good. Um, it is all part of the learning curve for me and... I think it it would open up that that whiskey for other people. So that's one option open to me. And if you are a retailer, you're listening to this and you think, well, yeah, I'd like to stock it, get in touch with me. Um, I I will be looking into this in a bit more detail soon when I've, when I've got a chance to breathe. Um, but, you know, do get in touch if you are interested in that. The other option, of course, would be for me never to have to buy a bottle of whiskey again because I'll, I'll have plenty of it at home to drink um, if I don't move it on. But I'm doing this because I really believe in this whiskey. I'm wanting to learn about it. I'm wanting to share this whiskey with others. So that that option would be a shame. Um, but anyway, enough about that for the moment because... We really should get on with the rest of this episode. Now, I said earlier on that this episode's an important episode, and I think it is. I think, in some respects, possibly the most important, or certainly one of the most important um, episodes that I've done. A little while ago, I spoke to Darren Rook from the London Distillery Company. Since then, a man called by the name of Alan Powell contacted me, phoned me up at home and on my email, and uh, he phoned me up at home, he phoned me on my mobile, he contacted me by email, and I thought, this man seems to uh, be desperate to talk to me, and I'm not that surprised, not that he wants to talk to me, but by what he had to say, because what he had to say was really important. It answers a question that I've had ticking away in my mind for a little while. And that is, Scotch whiskey is a very traditional product. It's quite a well-protected product. But, whilst it's important, traditional, protected, it can have the effect of holding back experimentation. Um... I'm so aware that in America, for example, they the blend between traditional approach and experimentation, at first glance anyway, seems to be quite healthy. You have the legislation in place that defines what certain whiskey types have to be like. You have the big distillers maintaining those, those trends, those traditions, those styles. But you also have a growing amount of small still craft distilleries that are experimenting with this and experimenting with that and being quite avant-garde in many ways. And yet, in the UK, that doesn't seem to happen. So all that um, experimentation, all that moving forward, all that fresh new idea and creativity 
seem to be therefore neglected from the whiskey scene in the UK. And I, I have mixed feelings about that because there's a part of me that thinks, yeah, scotch is important. Keeping scotch, scotch is important. But there's got to be a way of of developing forward things as well so that they can they can go alongside each other side by side and it's made me wonder whether why is it that we don't have a craft distilling movement going on in the UK well one of the reasons being and it is only one of the reasons but one of the reasons is that there is legislation that prohibits the licensing and the use of stills that are below a certain capacity. So, in other words, basically, only the larger stills um, can be in operation. They can only they can be licensed. Only they can be going concerns. And because of that, that requires bigger companies to be doing it. The small chap, the person, the small little outfit that wants to do this on a small scale are not able to do that they have to go big scale they don't always have the resources that's not always what they want to be about and that is one of the main things i think that has stopped craft distilling really kicking off in the whiskey field in the uk now having said all that what if i'm completely wrong what if I've misunderstood the legislation? What if it is possible, legally, to license small stills or undersized stills? Now, that would change everything. That would change everything on a big scale. Because if you could license small stills, suddenly it's more accessible. If you are doing this in parts of the UK that are not governed by, for example, the SWA, where there is no pretense whatsoever at it being Scotch, then you're not, or you shouldn't be, treading on anybody's toes. So would that then mean that I could start up a small private distillery using a very small still and making a whiskey-type product, even calling it whiskey, belongs it met certain criteria, as in, for example, ingredients, um, manufacturing process, the fact that I might age it for three years or more in oak casks, but different from scotch, and I'm not going to call it scotch. I might, for example, just call it English whiskey. And those oak casks might be second-hand oak casks that have held things that perhaps Scotch wouldn't dream of getting involved in. Or maybe even using completely brand new wood that's not been used before. Maybe, just maybe, not even using oak, but using other types of wood. Maybe even putting things in that cask like compass box once tried the internal staves do you know there's a whole range of things that one could do there's a whole range of little experimentations one could do with the distillation process 
All these things will become available, become possible, if I have got the law wrong, if my understanding about still size was wrong. But it's not. No, my understanding is right, and therefore there's no point in me doing that, there's no point in anybody else trying to do it, because the law is against us. Well, that's what I thought. That's what I thought, and then Alan Powell phoned me up. Now, I'm going to be open and honest with you. I do not have plans to open up a distillery. I do not have plans. I don't have the money. I don't have the experience, and I don't have the energy at the moment. But I bet you there's a whole load of people out there who do. I bet you there's a whole load of, of brewers, microbrewers, for example, who are already making beer who could so easily add on a small distilling outfit. It all seems to hinge on what Alan Powell would have to say to me. And that is what's making this episode a really important episode. I feel like I want to say to people, spread the news, everybody. Let's get something going here. Let's get a craft distilling movement going strong in the UK. So here we go with the telephone conversation. Sorry about the poor audio quality. Always happens when it's a recorded telephone conversation. But bear with it. Listen to the words that are being said here. They're important. Alan, it's so nice to talk to you. Um, You contacted me because you were listening to an episode of my podcast um, where I I spoke to Darren from the London Distillery Company. And uh, you wanted to clarify a few things. So I thought, well, that would be a good starting point. What what are the things you want to clarify? Well, um, Jim, I I, I heard Darren speaking about the, the London Distillery Company and the and the fact that Darren wants to use uh, a small still or, or, or an actually a versatile type of still for his operation. And Darren mentioned that um, the uh, the use of the still would, was subject to uh, his understanding of the law, which would allow an undersized still to be used. That is, a still of 18 hectolitres capacity or less. And um, in actual fact, uh, the law is quite clear that there is no absolute bar on the use of an undersized still. Uh, and I just wanted to contact you to, to clarify that and maybe to explain what the law actually says. Okay, okay. Now, first, before you do that, I mean, I must say that is a little bit of a shock to me because I really thought there was a limit on stills, still size, mm-hmm. and the ability to get a license. So what actually is the position then? Okay, the position is... Uh, that the commissioners of customs and excise um, have the power to license um, distilleries. Um, I'll just refer to the law, if you bear with me a moment, which is the Alcoholic Duties Act 1979, and it will probably be section 12, if I remember correctly. One second. Yes, the production of spirits, and it comes under section 12 of that act, which is headed license to manufacture spirits. And the law says, in, a se- in, a sense, no, in, in essence, no person shall manufacture spirits unless he holds an excise license for that purpose, uh, referred to as a distiller's license. Now, 
that the law also says the commissioners of customs and excise were the largest bill to be used on any premises in respect of which a distiller's license is sought, the manufacture of spirits by distillation of a fermented liquor is less than 18 hectolitres capacity, the commissioners may refuse to grant the license, or may grant it only subject to conditions as they see fit to impose. And where the, where the law says the commissioners may do something, what that means is the commissioners don't have an absolute right to refuse anything. They have to give what's called... Um, reasonable consideration they must exercise their powers of discretion reasonably and therefore it is perfectly reasonable for um, a person to say to the commissioners of customs exercise i would like a license please to manufacture spirits and my still is below 18 hectolitres capacity but my business plan is correct the risk to the revenue is nil i guarantee you that this will this because of this that this is the case that uh, we will establish such a, a premises that are secure and safe. It is difficult for the commissioners to actually then refuse that because to not to listen to a reasonable request would be to uh, fetter their discretion and that would be to act unreasonably. And to act unreasonably is unlawful in UK law. So provided you make a reasonable business case, it would be difficult for customs and excise to refuse an undersized bill on, on the basis that if they don't like to issue one, that would be illegal. Right, so just out of interest, I don't know if you could answer this question or not really, but how how frequent do you think it could be that people um, are refuse the licence um, and then just accept that refusal and, and don't take it any further, or may even just be put off in the first place by this? I think I think because of a misunderstanding of the law um, that people are, are discouraged, and I think there's a because the because until 1995, Commissioner's policy was to refuse uh, uh, 18 hectolitre stills or less uh, licences for those size stills. Um, it, it developed into a, a sort of a, the mythology of, of the licensing pro uh, provisions. But to bear in mind also, until 1995, there was no right to appeal against the refusal of the Commissioner's uh, um, uh, discretion. So if the Commissioner's refused you, you an application for a licence because your still was under 18 hectolitres capacity, um, you couldn't uh, you couldn't uh, uh, contest that decision by the tribunal route, which is a cheapish route and, and a fair route. You had to go for a judicial review, which is extremely costly and it acts as, as a, 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 a to anyone wanting to think about this. Sure. Um, when the law changed in '95, which in fact decriminalised much of excise law, um, the, uh, the the powers to, to also a commissioner have powers of discretion also became subject to the review and appeals process. Uh, and uh, so it, any any uh, um, decision by the commissioners um, to reject something where they have the discretionary powers can be appealed now. And uh, it, the case law indicates very strongly that if the commissioner acts unreasonably, they act unlawfully. Uh, and that's something they should bear in mind. I'm afraid they don't always and, and, and um, understand that themselves. They don't operate uh, in a way that is actually consistent with what the legal powers, uh, the legal uh, jurisprudence has developed in the UK. But nevertheless, that is the situation. Right. Now, it sounds like this is something that is quite easily misunderstood. It sounds also like this is something that isn't particularly widely known by people. If people became more aware of that, and I'm presuming that. What, from what you're saying, that certainly relative to how it used to be, this appeal procedure is a very simple one. Um, 
What sort of impact is that likely to have, do you think, on, on the whiskey industry? Well, it's, um, uh, uh, it's, it's one that's it's of interest because one sees a lot of, uh, of interest in undersized stills. Um, and I think I saw that the, uh, the, the um, English distillery at um, is it St George's, uh, which I noticed on the website, they said customs had refused them in a, uh, an undersized still, a license in respect of an undersized still, which I found quite astonishing in this day and age. Um, because where the, where the risk to the revenue can be uh, um, managed and the, you know, is minimal, and in a, in a time where it's a hands-off approach by the buy customs and excise to legitimate business, I mean, absolutely amazing that a business would have a problem with this. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Jim, before we go on, I'd like to go back to actually the, 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 the customs law uh, yeah, and, uh, and the application of it, because it, you, as I, uh, which I could I'll go on to it. Actually, you can go to their website and find out what the policy is, which shows there isn't an absolute bar. So, can I take it? Take yeah, it from yeah, that point. Sure, 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 sure. Okay, agenda to 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 recapitulate on the point of uh, the law and customs policy. Um, if you go to Customs and Excise uh, website and look under their manuals, if you look under, it's a heading, I'm afraid it's a, a bit of a mouthful, it comes under SPIR 3090, um, Law Policy and Application for Stills Under 18 Hectolitres Capacity. Um, it explains what the law says, which, which we've already discussed. And the policy and application says, although each application with distillers license is considered on its merits, it is not our normal policy to grant approval whether spirits manufactured will be used as an alcoholic beverage uh, and the largest still used has a capacity of less than 18 hectolitres. However, we may consider license applications in respect of stills below 18 hectolitres where the factory controls in place to protect the revenue. The required control resources are not disproportionate to the amount of revenue involved. Um, and I can tell you that I knew that because I wrote it. All right. And, yeah. And you will find that the, that the control guidance for spirits is X1, which I wrote, and took fully in, into account the circumstances of the new um, uh, conditions which um, the industry worked under, and that is, we, we as customers and exercise have to act reasonably where we exercise our discretion. And that was a A lot of people in customs and said, well, we're not in control of our destiny any, anymore. And to an extent, that is true. Where the commissioners do not act reasonably, they always act unlawfully. And that is something that um, uh, is, is not widely understood, although it ought to be, I, su I suspect. Um, and again, we, you know, comes coming in a full circle. If you want an undersized bill, if you act reasonably, and you've got a good business case, and you won't compromise the revenue, there is no reason why the commissioners should refuse that application. If they do refuse it, you can appeal it by the tribunals, and there are sufficient, there are sufficient jurisprudence developed to give you a, a, a very good chance of, of success at tribunal. Hopefully you don't have to go that far, and, and when Darren and I go forward with the, the London distillery process, we will be making that case to customs reasonably, and we hope they will listen reasonably. Right, now Alan, you, you sneaked in a couple of things here. One is saying that you wrote that bit, the yep. other one saying, well, when Darren and I, and of course what we haven't done for the listeners at this point, is sort, of, is sort of clarify who you are and how come you know this. So <laughs> let me ask you that question. Yeah. Who, who are you, Alan? How come who you am know I? Um, I'm, uh, I, I'm uh, an independent excise duties consultant. Um, I was formerly with Customs and Excise between 88 and, and 99, uh, sorry, 97. Um, hitherto, I had been a micro commercial microbrewer um, and, and also a member, an early member or, or, or user of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. So I'm, I'm quite a, I'm a buff on it, real ale and, and whiskey. 
uh, as well as understanding the, the manufacture of it and actually the commercial aspects of it. Um, I happened to be also uh, out of work uh, after the, the business. It didn't quite take off um, uh, in the late 80s and joined Customs and Excise um, as an executive officer. And bizarrely, it was posted to the alcohol branch of the headquarters policy. Um, it was a square peg in a square hole, perhaps the only time in history for the civil service. Uh, and thereafter, I, um, I was immersed in the more arcane world of excise law, um, which all indirect tax practitioners will tell you is uh, is very difficult to comprehend and, and understand and to uh, uh, to, to practice in. Um, and um, I, uh, after nine years working customs and excise in these areas, not just in in, in alcohol production, but in um, holding and movement warehousing uh, and the uh, the new appeals processes and various special projects like trying to rewrite a new excise management act. Um, we, uh, I, I parted company with, with Customs and Excise to pursue, a, uh, a, a, if you like, more of an interest to me, which was a wider consultancy for all excise businesses, because nothing really existed like that. Um, and I worked for the big four, one of the big four accountancy firms, uh, where I was a senior manager for a number of years, and subsequently decided to, to go on my own, not least because I can do, I have more freedom, and I advocate, for example, a tribunal, uh, which I'm entitled to do. Um, but which I wouldn't have been able to do, say, working as a, 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 an employee for a, a, um, an accountancy firm. Hmm. So I have total um, freedom and flexibility to, to, to choose and do what I want to do. Um, and I met Darren um, at, as manager of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, and we started chatting, and the undersized still license came up. Um, and, uh, and it went from there, really. And Darren asked if I would help him out and, be, and join him as a non-executive director, uh, which I agreed to do. And uh, so my role will be to deal with all of the legislative um, pro, uh, issues uh, and procedures for uh, setting up a small distillery. So, in short, you are somebody who knows his stuff. You're there, if I may say so, at the forefront of all this. You've yes, got a, a, an invested interest and a natural interest in this. Um, but I also have to, to add this little bit to it as well. Why should we be bothered with this? Why should we be interested with it? For the average whiskey drinker, what is the impact this do you think this could actually have on the overall whiskey world? It, well, it, it has, first of all, it, I'd like to clarify the myths that have been that have developed, and, and one sees in, in a number of publications uh, where a, a number of people would say, we'd like to experiment with, with small stills. And I saw that in the Unfiltered magazine recently, in the uh, Scotch Malt Whiskey Society uh, magazine. Um, and a number of people have mentioned in that magazine about undersized stills being something they would like to pursue but can't. Um, and... It's, so therefore, there is an interest in it. Obviously, the um, the uh, uh, English distillery um, uh, application, which was refused, shows there is an interest in it. More widely, um, uh, there is, you know clearly want to go into a sort of a boutique area, niche areas for microbrewers uh, to become distillers and to to, uh, to operate in their own right. Mm. Then there is every every reason to be able to say that could this could generate a new generation of, if you like micro distillers if they want to do that like micro did in the 80s yeah and i have to say this is a whiskey based podcast so some some listeners might find what i'm about to say sacrilege uh, i have to use the gin word yeah um 
I am aware that within the gin scene at the moment, there seems to be a rise in the number of small still outfit um, craft distilling gin producing um, yeah. places, certainly in the London area. Do you think there's a possibility that that could actually now lead on to whiskey as well? I don't see why not, um, uh, but I have to draw a distinction in law about what you can do as a gin manufacturer and what you do to actually produce spirits in the first place. Because what we're talking about from Endersize still is that restriction is about producing spirits in the first place from a saccharous solution. Um, so you start with your grain or, or whatever it's going to be, and you uh, and then you ferment it and, and, and then distill the ferment, the wash, and uh, uh, the water wash, and, and you get your spirit. That is the manufacture of spirits in, in a distillery. With a, with a manufacture of gin, you start, in essence, in a rectifier's uh, premises. And a rectifier does, it can be an in, in bond or out of bond. In bond, obviously, duty suspended. Out of bond, duty paid, but you've got a big cash flow problem there and losses aren't allowed. Uh, you can't claim any losses uh, on duty paid product because that's your own risk. Um, but there is no, there is no limit to a size of still for rectifying uh, ethanol that's already been produced. Right. So, so there's always been the capacity to do that for, mm. for gin. When people talk about gin distillers, they're not really distillers, they're rectifiers of a product that's already been produced and which is commercially available to, to, to work your art on. Mm. But with a bit more understanding of the law, with the health of people like yourself, there's no real reason why a good, thriving, craft distilling movement couldn't really kick off within England? No, absolutely no reason at all. Um, in fact, it, it, it ought to be to be encouraged um, because, you know, craft people, like microbrewers, they tend to be dedicated and they tend to be uh, very enthusiastic, of course, um, and, and, and compliant as a result of that. Because if you're not compliant, and this is, this is the, the corollary to the, to the reasonless for customs, if you aren't compliant, then, then the customs can reasonably take your approval away and take your livelihood away if you're a, a producer. Mm. So there's always that check, checks and balances built into it all. Provocative question, Alan. One you might want to be a bit careful about how you answer, I suppose, but <laughs> where, do, where do you feel the SWA fits into this? The SWA? Um, well, I don't, I don't really know. Um, there is a, a um, you know, there's clearly uh, an, in, an interest in, in, in uh, of the um, major distillers and the Scotch whisky definition, etc., um, to be uh, um, circumspect about what they would like to have a, a proliferation of distilleries and things. Um, so it's a difficult one for me. I mean, maybe that the, you know any interest develops the interest generally. Mm. Um, it may be that they may not want to see it that way. I think that manufacturers are still think that, you know, uh, that, um, oh, we couldn't possibly make this because it would be illegal if you wanted an undersized still. I think it's an ingrained um, misapprehension of what the law actually says and what the issues are. Interestingly, actually, in terms of the license, um, uh, the, the actual requirement for a license is archaic. It comes from a time when um, people paid for a license. So you apply for a license, you pay for a license. And um, it's a very, you know, it's an archaic control provision which has been um, eliminated from many of the regimes. And customs consulted a couple of years ago on whether or not licenses should be removed. And uh, I foresaw and said to customs uh, in a meeting that we had in Westminster about uh, this consultation that the only people I could foresee who would want to retain licenses would be the distillers. And exactly that thing happened. Um, because I think it's because they see it as we are licensed and therefore it, it's historic. 
but it makes no sense in the context of modern European law. A license is an archaic thing. Authorizations and approvals are all new in need. And it would be a bit silly to maintain a license just for one industry. Uh, in fact, it would be quite absurd, but, you know, that is the, 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 the commercial aspect of um, the, the, the legislative system government uh, that we still, I think, want to continue with. Because it's, we've seen as under control of customs, we're licensed, we just look at us. That's our, that's our license above our door. Yeah. And of course, there are countries that don't have these licensing laws, are there? There's like New Zealand, for example, where, from my understanding, it's perfectly legal for for people to set up their own stills and, and run them as such. Yeah, um, I, I, it's it, that's so, and, and you know, other countries will have a different legislation. Um, but the, within the European Community, um, anyone that produces product commercially is what's known as a tax warehouse. Uh, and a tax warehouse is sometimes understood as, as an excise warehouse, a bond, but actually a tax warehouse is where any excise product is produced, stored, uh, or dispatched. It's, it's if, if you like, the, the entire concept of duty suspense bond, whether it's a brewery, distillery, an oil refinery, they're all tax warehouses. If you're a distillery, you have to be a tax warehouse, and you have to comply with community rules for tax warehouses. Each member state can apply its own rules, but if you are a commercial a distiller, you have to be licensed, as, uh, approved as an authorised, and then you pardon, authorised warehouse keeper to operate a tax warehouse, which is the distillery in UK law. Uh, so you must comply with community law, but within that, uh, each member state is allowed to set its own conditions. Mm. The 18 hectolitre capacity uh, still size as a condition is a UK condition. But in short, we could be looking at the beginnings of a whole new movement here. I mean, the, the thing I was asking about the SWA is that I would anticipate the SWA would would object to part of this and would say, well, you can't call it Scotch. Well, of course, if, if you're in the U in England, you don't want to call it Scotch. No, you don't. No, um, you can't. <laughs> yeah, and, and free from that restriction, you could end up having a situation very similar to what's happened in America, where you do have this this varied experimental, mm. you know, craft distilling, craft whiskey making community that's, that's going on there, yeah. which, is, yeah. which is exciting. And, and I personally don't think actually it deters from Scotch in any way whatsoever. I wouldn't have thought so. Um, I mean, the, the point about, it, about any kind of proliferation like this is, is that it generates interest in the product. And whether, you know, an English whiskey, I mean, there's nothing, no reason why it can't be called whiskey, it can't be called Scotch whiskey, it can be called malt whiskey, if that's what it is. Yeah. Um, then, uh, then it could be, you know, it, it could stimulate interest more broadly for the spirit sector, um, which is which is actually, uh, in terms of the duty, it is discriminated against in, in community law and the structures, that it is, it is the only product that has a pretty high minimum rate that has to be applied across the community. Um, and, you know, it, it's... This is a sort of a way that could be seen as a generating more interest, perhaps uh, to new drinkers as well, younger drinkers maybe. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Aaron, thank you for talking to me. Um, you've really clarified a few things, but more than just clarifying a few things, as I said, it, it seems to be making that initial spark that I'm, I'm hoping people will listen to and, and respond to as well. Not that I want to give the London Distillery Company competition, um, but at the same way, you know, it's it's nice for the to have that company as well, isn't it, to actually get that yes. sort of a market going. Yes, and and, and, and frankly, you know, if if you if you have a, an undersized still, uh, then it will get around, and people will ask the questions. And once you 
once once one has got got one, then anyone can have one. Because a precedent is set, you can't deny anyone else and uh, under the same policy that someone else has actually uh, qualified for by being by having a good business case and not being a revenue risk. Yeah. Um, and, and so you know you you set a pre- you, 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 you the policy has to be operated in a certain way by customs. If you within that policy get a, an undersized um, uh, still license, then you know that, that is clearly the case that you can have it. Yeah. And I would also think we should um, outline what we're talking about here is legal distillation, legal, no, the whole legal side of it. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about anything that is of an illegal still. Absolutely not. Um, which I know does go on in this country. And in fact, I was at a, in a local shop recently where they, where you could actually go in and buy a, a small still. Mm-hmm. And um, the argument that they gave me there was, I know it's perfectly legal to buy and use this still. All you do is you distill water in it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but yeah. mod weak you could use it for other things. That's not what we're talking about. We're, we're no, 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 no. Proper setup, legal operation here. Yes, in fact, uh, it's the one thing that when we in customs and excise we looked at decriminalising excise law. Um, I took the decision to recommend that we retained uh, illicit distillation as an as an illegal activity. It's one of the few things that is actually illegal uh, and and and, uh, and remains subject to the the criminal code rather than the civil code. So uh, it it remains an offence in criminal law to uh, um, distill illicitly, whereas nearly everything else has been put under the civil code and, and subject to the civil provisions. Okay. I should have explained that uh, part of the the, um, the process of producing spirits from uh, in a distillery is that you also have to have association with the distillery, uh, 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 an excise warehouse, a bonded warehouse. Um, because once the spirits have been produced, uh, you have to take account of the spirits called taking first account, usually the spirits receiver. Um, and that, that uh, vessel is also usually designated as a dual vessel, as, as a uh, warehouse uh, receipt vessel. So you, t- you have to take account of the spirits. The minute you take the account, you have to remove the spirits to a warehouse. If the vessel is dual status as also having a warehouse status, then that then the law is complied with. Immediately spirits have been manufactured in the warehouse. They they are in the warehouse regime. That is separate to the distillery regime. So you must under all the the alcoholic duty act nineteen seventy nine section fifteen have an excise warehouse approval in association to then uh, bring the spirits into the warehousing system. So you do have to have in association with your distillery an excise warehouse a bond. Yeah. Um, and you must then comply with all of the conditions for excise warehousing. Um, again, most of those conditions are are discretionary in law. The conditions the Commission has imposed have to be, are, are set out in a public notice. That expression of policy has to be exercised reasonably. So if you've got a little distillery and you've got a little warehouse and maturation, provided that you do everything, keep your nose clean, uh, abide by the rules, and um, you can request uh, relaxation where it's reasonable, and customs have to have this reasonably. So, although it, it may sound like quite a, uh, a lot to take on board, um, provided that you can you know, steer your way through the waters, it shouldn't be too difficult. Right. And let's be sure, we're, we're, to sort of clarify this for people, we are actually talking about distilling spirits that are for human consumption. We're not talking about distilling um, alcohol that it can then be used for other purposes, such as for fuel or, or manufacturing. Well, or 
Well, when you start off with it to produce it, the glue doesn't recognise the distinction, Jim. Right. If you produce spirits, whether it's for potable use or whether it's for industrial use, that the primary agricultural purpose is at that point there's no distinction, yeah. and there's no distinction when you warehouse the goods either. The distinction arises when you put it to uh, whether a potable use or a use for which either there is a duty relief. Um, for example, for industrial purposes, for denatured alcohol for use in industry, uh, or as a biofuel, for example. Uh, it, it's, what happens is that the duty charge attaches to the use, in effect, when it leaves bond. Right. Okay, that does make sense. Well, as I said, thank you ever so much, Alan. It's, it's been a treat talking to you. And I, as I said before, I hope people will be inspired by it to, to, uh, to respond to it. And... Uh, Thank you ever so much. It's a pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much for asking me. Okay. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at com. There's the website www.themaltedmuse.com and there's also Twitter, Twitter at The Malted Muse. So thank you again for listening. I hope you'll listen next week. And until then, thank you and goodbye.